Why don't we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going through the book of 1 Corinthians. Now Paul, he's going to be talking about questions that the Corinthian church has. So why don't we start with prayer? And we're going to talk about a topic that is almost never used. It's the word celibacy, okay? So let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you. We ask that your word would be clear, that you would help us men and women to be pure sexually, to honor you with our bodies. We pray, Father, this is, uh, this is what you desire for us to do. We are to hold marriage in sanctity and in honor, to keep the marriage bed undefiled as you have called us. We pray, Father, that you would help us. We know that the culture mocks us. We know that the culture is against the traditional roles of husband and wife. And so we pray, Father, that you would help us to understand this. Thank you that you have not left us in the dark, but you have given us clarity. In Jesus' name, amen. If you recall, we were talking about the situation in Corinth. In Corinth, we understood that it was a very loose, sexually immoral city. It was a sailor town. It was a port town where everyone would go. And, and there was what, what was happening was in the church at Corinth, there were people who were getting saved, but they had these backgrounds that were haunting them of stuff they used to do. And it kind of tweaked their minds and they didn't know exactly what they should be doing. Should they be single? Should they be married? If I was single, should I be having sex? Or if I'm married, should I stop having sex? They were so confused. And we remember from uh, last week, Paul tells them in uh, chapter 6, verse 17, he says, But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside of body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. And then you have this verse that is oftentimes taken out of context and put on Instagram all the time. When they're lifting weights or something, right? Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Folks say, body's the temple, body's the temple. And what the, what the scriptures are saying is, if in fact the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, why would you join it in filth? Why would you join it with a prostitute? That's what, exactly what Paul is talking about. And so now he's going to continue on. And he says in verse 20, you have been bought with a price. That price is Christ himself dying on the cross, shedding his blood for your sins. Therefore glorify God in your body. And so this is the context by which Paul talks to them. He is talking to people who have placed their faith in Christ. He is talking to a people who understand that they were made in the image of God. That this world isn't all that there is. That we're not just simply materials and atoms and molecules placed together. But we are souls created to glorify God who is in heaven. But our sins have separated us from him. One of them being sexual sin, sexual perversion. And yet, God in his love sent his son to live the exact perfect holy life that we couldn't do. To die on the cross, to be buried, resurrected, and ascended. And the Bible says that if we have faith in Christ, that his blood that we sung about, 
His atonement, which washes our sins, his righteousness comes upon us, is imputed on us, and our sins are imputed on Christ. And he says, now you have been bought with a price. And so his whole premise, Paul's whole premise, is not that this is my body, I can do whatever I want. His whole promise premise is you, if you are a Christian today, your body is God's. Just like your soul is God's. My soul and my body ought to be imaging forth, giving glory by the way I live, by the way I speak, by the way I act, by what I do with my body. It should glorify God who is in heaven through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is what he comes to the text with. And now, of course, people have questions. We have a lot of questions. I got questions. So he says in verses 1 through 7, this is our text. And this is what we'll be going through as we continue through the book of Corinthians. He's going to be talking about single people. He's going to be talking about married people. He's going to be talking about the divorce. He's going to be talking about if you're married to an unbeliever. He's going to be talking about if your loved one dies and you're a widow. How do you deal with all these different marital statuses? What does it mean to glorify Christ in all of these categories? So in verses 1 through 7, I'll read it. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command, yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. God gave this passage for you this morning. If you're listening, he gave this passage to you this morning so that you would use celibacy as a tool to glorify Christ with your sexuality. I'll say that again. That you would use celibacy as a tool to glorify Christ with your sexuality. Now we use this term celibacy. Here's what I mean by it, okay? Because this is always mistaken and we have a lot of history that has distorted it, okay? Here's what I mean. It means practicing abstinence from sexual activity while unmarried for the purpose of glorifying Christ. Practicing abstinence from sexual activity while unmarried for the purpose of glorifying Christ. You notice I say celibacy as a tool. Celibacy is not the destination. Celibacy is not the standard. Celibacy is not the... Uh, uh, is not the place where I say I have arrived. It's simply a tool. What is it to do? As all things, to give glory to Christ. Here's what it isn't. 
Okay, celibacy is not this. We're not talking about clerical celibacy, the discipline within the Catholic Church by which only unmarried men are ordained to priesthood. You, you could write this down, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 to 5, it says, but the Spirit explicitly, explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the pay, faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience, as with a branding iron, verse 3, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. So we're not talking about a celibacy that is enforced and forced upon you to become a priest. We don't believe that. That's nowhere in scripture. Marriage is beautiful. It is not what... Some doctrines teach where they would say it is a necessary evil simply to have children. That's false. God has created marriage primarily for companionship. And we're going to take a look at that later on. But there are four considerations regarding celibacy to use as a tool to glorify Christ with your sexuality. Notice Paul is not pulling any punches. He speaks very candidly about these things so that there is no ambiguity. The first point, first consideration when using celibacy as a tool to glorify Christ with your sexuality is number one, single brothers and sisters. Single brothers and sisters. Temporary celibacy is excellent. Temporary celibacy is excellent. And he says here... In verse 1 of chapter 7, now concerning the things about which you wrote, the most obvious explanation for this phrase is that the Corinthian church had questions about sexuality and singleness and marriage. It's very, very similar whenever we preach about dating and getting married to uh, college students. They always have questions. It's very similar to that. We want to know. I want to know how to do this. I want to know how to do this right. I want to know how God wants me to do this. So they had these questions, and it was probably a letter delivered to them by Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. You can look at 1 Corinthians 16, 17. Later on in this chapter, Paul's going to address, as I said, marriage and divorce and remarriage and widows and widowers. So he's going to talk about everyone. No matter what stage you're in, you're in here somewhere. But much like today, there was so much confusion about sex, about singleness, and about marriage. As one commentator said, the Corinthian society was steeped in fornication, adultery, homosexuality, polygamy, serial marriages, and concubinage. It was so confusing as they all came, the Corinthian church. Most of them were, uh, did not come from a Jewish background. They were Gentiles. And they all came with baggage. How do I deal with this baggage? How, do, how, how am I supposed to think properly about sexuality? I know there's more to life than this. 
see at that time, it was so confusing. There were different types of marriage. Uh, there was a slave marriage. They called it a tent companionship where the master ordained it. He would put two together and he would separate them. He had the freedom to arrange new partners. Many Christians were slaves and perhaps many of them were in the Corinthian church. They were probably in that kind of relationship. So they're trying to figure this out. Then there's the common law marriage. After a couple lived together for a year, they were considered to be married. Then there was a, a father, I call it a father arranged marriage, where the father would sell his daughter for a prospective husband, like a dowry. Then there's this nobility marriage, where a modern marriage ceremony is based upon, that we, we still practice today, we have a lot of it. Both families make arrangements for the wedding, there's a best man, there's a bridesmaid, there's an exchanging of vows, there's a veil on the bride, there's an exchanging of rings, there's a bouquet, there's even a wedding cake. Divorce was rampant in, in uh, Corinth. Some people were married and divorced, more than 20 times. Man. There was a strong feminist movement where women didn't want to be housewives or mothers anymore. They were many who were had childless marriages and, and both men and women wanted to live their own lives without regarding their marriage commitments to each other. In the church, the Corinthian church, you most likely had folks who were living in one of these four types of marriages. Many of them were probably married and divorced multiple times. Some probably thought being celibate was more godly or more spiritual. This is what they're thinking. If I don't have sex, I'm probably more godly, more spiritual than someone else. Than being married and saw marriage probably as a necessary evil. They saw sex as unspiritual. See, it was very confusing for those coming to Christ. Should we stay together now that we are believers? I came to Christ, but my husband didn't. Should I stay married if he's an unbeliever? Should we be having sex? Should I, as a believer, be having sex with an unbeliever if he's my husband? Should I divorce and stay single? Should I be celibate for life? Is that more godly? If I'm married, is it more spiritual to have a sexless marriage? Their questions are so relevant today. In a world so confused right now. In a world so confused of gender roles. So-called homosexual marriage. Transgenderism. Casual sex. And polyamory. It's a blessing that God has not left us in the dark. Amen? He has given us this beautiful design of singleness and this beautiful design of marriage so that we could image forth his glory and receive his blessing in whatever category we're in at that time. And Paul will now continue his instruction on sexual purity to its application. First, he will tackle celibacy, singleness, and then marriage, divorce, remarriage, and widows. So first, what is the role of celibacy in the sight of God? How is it in relation to singleness and marriage? And as I said, the first consideration is single brothers and sisters in the Lord. Temporary celibacy is excellent. He says in the verse, look at the verse, verse 1. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. 
The word there means good, beautiful, pleasant, advantageous, morally good, excellent. For a man, he's talking uh, in context, a single man, not to touch a woman. He's not saying the, the awkward side Christian hug. He's not saying you shouldn't do that. Okay, He's using a euphemism here to touch a woman means to have sexual intercourse. And, and vice versa, it's not good for a single woman to be having sex with a single man. We see that euphemism is used in Genesis 20, in Ruth 2, in Proverbs 6. But what he's saying this in, in, in a gist is it was a good, it is a good and Christ-honoring life if you are single and that you would be celibate for the glory of Christ, keeping yourself from fornication. Paul does not say that single celibacy is the only good in spiritual category. Nor does he say that marriage is a necessarily necessary evil. Nor that it's less spiritual than celibacy. He just says that if you're single, temporary celibacy is the excellent way to glorify Christ with your sexuality. We remember Genesis 2. It says, it is not good for a man to be alone. That's why he made a woman. Marriage is God's ordained mean to fill that void of lack of companionship. But in 1 Corinthians 7, now he's saying it can be good to be single as long as you are celibate. Then there are, the, there are those, some who, probably from their background, decided, this is what they were thinking, that it would be better to be single, which is fine. You can do that. But what started to occur was that some of them were starting to look at celibacy as the only and best ideal spiritual state. And that it was more pleasing to God. That is just simply wrong. As a single person, by God's grace, yes, I was telling, a, I was telling our college and career group that met last Friday, you can... Be pure by the glory of Christ. Yes, you can. Don't believe the lies that the world is telling you. That you don't have the strength in Christ. That it's impossible for the glory of Christ. Yes, you can do this. So the first one is to remember that in the sight of God. That we don't simply give ourselves away. He says here that single brothers and sisters, temporary celibacy is excellent. Secondly... Single brothers and sisters, temporary celibacy, I say temporary before you get married, temporary celibacy is tempting. We got to be real. This is what Paul is saying. You have to be real with sexual temptation. Verse 2, he says, because of immoralities. The word there, immoralities, comes from the Greek word porneia, where we get the word pornography. Because of immoralities and what he has specifically is fornication, that is sex outside of marriage. He's not accusing all of those in the Corinthian church who are single that they're committing fornication. He's just simply saying that there is a true danger of fornication who are single. The sexual drive that is unfulfilled can be a great temptation, especially in a seedy city like Corinth. It's very much like today. He says, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. 
So this instruction here is not simply, well, if you have a sexual desire, go get married. He's not looking at marriage, as one commentator says, as an escape valve for your sex drive. You got a sex drive, just get married. He's not saying that at all. Oh, that's the way you deal with it. What he's saying is, well, we know later on in Ephesians, Paul has a high view of marriage as wives submit to husbands as unto the Lord, and as husbands love their wives as Christ loved the church. Paul's, the whole Bible's perspective on marriage is very, very high. Marriage is God created marriage for procreation in Genesis 1.28. It tells, tells us to be fruitful and multiply. God gave us marriage for pleasure in Proverbs 5.18 and 19 to rejoice in the wife of your youth. God gave us marriage for partnership in Genesis chapter 2. He creates a helpmate for you as he allowed man to feel alone. God as also gave marriage as a picture, as Christ and the church. This is why husbands ought to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And also, finally, marriage was given for purity so that it meets the needs of sexual drives. See, celibacy can be good for... Basically what he's saying is celibacy can be good for single folks, but it has... It has, and it comes with its own real set of temptations. Celibacy can be good, but it's not better or more spiritual than marriage. In a, in a world of false hopes of love, of hookups, of Tinder apps, of pornography, of strip bars, and, perver and perversion of all sorts. They're just cheap substitutes of a loving, committed relationship. Loving one another, being completely vulnerable and naked, not just in body, but in mind, in soul. And entrusting yourself to someone who says, I'm going to be there no matter what. I have committed myself both privately and publicly, and I will keep my vows. Brothers and sisters, that's what you want. You single folks who are out there, that's what you want. That's what you want. The love as God intended. The love as God has designed. And you do this for the glory of Christ. By the way, if you are a Christian and you have Tinder on your phone, you need to repent. You need to take that off and repent. That's a sin. You want to know why that's a sin? Because it's there for hookups. That's what it's there for. You need to remove that kind of stuff out of your life. So, Single brothers and sisters, temporary celibacy is excellent. Temporary celibacy is tempting. It has its inherent temptations. We understand that. And as a church, brothers and sisters, you married folks, please don't tease or make fun of the singles in our church. It is a real temptation. It is real difficult waiting for God to give you that mate. 
We want to encourage that. We want to encourage purity. We want to encourage waiting because it gives Christ the glory. Third, married brothers and sisters. Permanent celibacy is sinful. Did you catch that? So my first two points were temporary single brothers and sisters, temporary celibacy is excellent. Single brothers, sisters, temporary celibacy is tempting. Number three, married brothers and sisters, permanent celibacy is sinful. Permanent celibacy in a marriage is very clearly wrong. Yet some in the church probably thought, in this Corinthian church, probably thought it was somehow more spiritual to abstain from sex even when they are married. They touted a spiritual marriage. Most likely, when a husband came to Christ and was already married to an unbeliever, he thought it was godly zeal for him to abstain. He probably learned that from different pagan religions. And this was vice versa for the woman who came to Christ while married to an unbelieving husband. But we'll notice there's some there's a there's three characterizations of and telling us and defining that permanent celibacy is sinful. First, it's a duty. Paul says it is a duty. It is a duty. He says, let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife, likewise also the wife to her husband. When a husband and a wife get together and they're married, sex, sexual relations happen frequently and is enjoyed. But as the years go by, sometimes there are these different uh, reasons that it starts to stop. But married spouses, this is what Paul says, married spouses should not sexually deprive their husband or their wife from sex, whether or not he or she is a Christian. If you're already married, whether or not he or she is a Christian, you will notice later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 10 to 17, he says here, look at verse 10, but to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. And she's talking about someone who's come to Christ and has an unbelieving husband. Sex in a marriage union is not only exclusive, this is what the Bible teaches, but it's also mandated. Wow. You don't ever hear that. Hardly ever. When people talk about Christianity and sex, oftentimes they say, oh, Christians are against sex. That is not true. God designed sex. He created it to be expressed in a deep, intimate relationship with someone who is committed themselves lifelong for each other. But Paul says, it's not just a privilege. It's a responsibility. Never thought about it in that way, right? It's an obligation. It's a duty to sexually satisfy each other. Notice in the text it says, chapter uh, 7, verse 3. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife... And likewise, also the wife to her husband. Notice it is likewise. It's a mutual duty. It's not just the wife pleasing the husband, but it's also the husband pleasing the wife. The husband for the wife and the wife for the husband. 
So the duty, it's, it's absolutely clear, but here's the basis is the next verse. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Feminists would get steamed right here, but I, all I have to say is keep reading. Usually when people get upset about a doctrine and they don't understand, most of the time all I have to say is keep reading. Just keep reading the context. Oh, okay. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Oh, wait. How does that work? Sexual desire and expression in marriage honors God. And God honors it. In fact, to reject this is to reject and dishonor God himself. The word therefore authority is the same word exousia that we see in Matthew 28. He has given me all authority on heaven and earth. He's saying that the spouse has authority over the other person's body. So when you see, especially when you see in the, these pro-abortion and pro-choice, my body, my choice, no, it's not really, that's not really true. If you're a Christian, your body is God's. It's his choice what to do, right? He then says here, in life, in regular things of life, surely the Christian has to take care of his or own, her own body. She, watch, she watches what she eats. She works out. He watches what he eats. He works out. He lifts, does exercise. Spiritually, we're all gods, correct? But in marriage, in the marriage realm, the spouse's bodies actually belong to each other. See, this is why... This is why sex in a committed marriage is so important. You're actually giving yourself to someone else. Sex is not an option in a marriage. Did you know that? It doesn't just exist to procreate children. It's God's beautiful design to experience and express love to another person at the deepest level. It is God's beautiful and wondrous design of marriage as the husband to the wife. Notice, here's the danger. He says, stop depriving one another. Notice he says there, verse 5. Stop depriving one another, except by the agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again. He says, stop depriving. That's a second person plural imperative. And all that means is, it's a command. You... Now he's commanding you. Can you believe it? He's commanding couples. You must have sex. <laughs> or else you're depriving them. It says here, the word there for deprive means to steal, to rob, to defraud. Then he gives an exception. Except by agreement for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. When both people agree for a brief time, it's a brief time, so that either of you can have some intense time of prayer. 
Sometimes this occurs when God gives a strong burden and there's a, there's a problem at church that is so heavy that you have to go pray. I got to go pray. This person is in, this other person's in sin or I got to pray. This is what's happening in the church or you're someone, someone's on your heart and they need the Lord and you want to pray or maybe there's some grief and someone has died and, and, and you just can't do it at that time or maybe you're, there's a sickness and you just need to speak to the Lord. But when the time of prayer is ended, husbands and wives should come together again. There should be an agreed upon time to come together. It should be brief. There should not be an indefinite end. Oh, we'll get around to it when we get around to it. It should be done. And you need to come together. Let's notice here's the danger. Satan tempts you because of your lack of self-control. Sometimes one person has had such a deep time of ministry and encouragement in praying and the other person has not. And by you not having sex with your spouse, you're actually tempting your spouse to adultery. It is dangerous. You married brothers and sisters. It is dangerous to be in a sexless marriage. It is dangerous. Now, I just want to take a a couple seconds just to just to see how this works. Now, I know you single folks are probably thinking, "What in the world? How can, how could that ever be? There's no sex in marriage? What?" I know when you're before uh, it, as a single person, that is the temptation all the time. You're thinking about it, right? But as a married person, you start to think, you know, you know, that flame is starting to dwindle down. Then you start to think, you know, it's just sex. I remember when we were in Asia, uh, we were ministering in Asia, and many came from a Hindu background. They had twisted views on sex and abstinence. And sometimes it, that, those kind of twisted views would seep into the church. And sometimes men who were Christians, who were professing Christians, in their unfounded views would not have sex with their wives because they thought it was more spiritual. They actually believed it. They would go on these long ministry trips for months and months on end. They would leave their wives and quite starkly, they would place their marriage on the altar of some supposed warped view of ministry. But it can happen. Sexless marriages can sometimes take place when the husband is not loving his wife as Christ loved the church. The husband no longer wants to romance and date his wife anymore. Maybe the years are looking on his wife, and so he starts to envy other women. Maybe the pounds have showed up because of childbirth, and now she's not as attractive to you as you, as you see the other women. And so you start to, your eyes start to look. And then you start to look at porn, and you start to go into that world of porn. And then you're at work, and then finally someone at work is paying attention to you. They're actually listening to you. This this beautiful younger girl is listening to you. And you rationalize in your head. You know, God knows I have these needs. Surely, if he loves me, 
I should fulfill them since I'm not having it at home all the while because you're not romancing the wife of your youth. You'll say, well, uh, I've done everything. No, you haven't. You know how to romance. Husbands, you know how to romance your wives. You did it when you won her. Correct? And then the man slips into adultery because he has not cultivated a relationship with his wife. Sometimes sexless marriage can take place. The husband and a wife have a fight. The wife is bitter. They don't want to reconcile. So she goes, I'll, I'll show him. We just won't have sex. All the while tempting the husband. Sometimes a sexless marriage can happen when there has been prior sexual abuse and, and a woman and the husband doesn't know and a woman comes in and, and she's been sexually abused and she doesn't want to have sex because of the memories and there, there needs to be a lot of unpacking and loving and gentle uh, gentle biblical counseling through that and understanding the promises of God. But there needs to be a working towards a healthy Biblical married sex life. Sometimes a sexist marriage can occur when you're just too busy. Oh, married couples. Here's my advice. Date weekly. Find someone to watch the kids. Leave the kids with someone. Enjoy each other's companionship. Make time. Because a celibate life in marriage is a joyless life in marriage. It is not the design of God. So, lastly, all brothers and sisters. So I said single brothers and sisters. Celibacy is excellent. Single brothers and sisters, celibacy can be a temptation. Married brothers and sisters, celibacy is sinful. Now, all brothers and sisters, lifelong celibacy is a gift. This is a different category. Verses 6 and 7 now. Verses 6 and 7. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. As a church, as a church, we need to have this theological understanding that there is a gift, a lifelong, permanent gift of celibacy given to some individuals. Very clearly, look, it says here, however, each man has his own gift. Very clear, okay? He says, but I say by way of concession, not of command. It's probably, the definition for that word for concession is probably to have the same opinion or like-minded. It's, it means more to be like-minded. And what he's stating is, in keeping of, I'm aware, I am aware that being single and celibate, celibate is good. But I'm also aware that there are blessings of marriage and they're good as well. We know that marriage is the norm but it is not required of believers or more or spiritual believers. And so what he's saying is this. If you are single, that is good. Stay celibate until you're married. If you are married, that is good. Stay married and have normal sexual relationships. Spirituality is not determined by marital status. 
And so now he's going to talk about this gift. He says, Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. And so what he's saying is, Paul, we know from the text, from the scriptures, Paul never got married. He was the, he was the only disciple we know that didn't get married. And he's saying, I wish that all men were like myself. What he is saying is this. As a single person in ministry, there is advantage. And here's the advantage. You could set your schedule. You could, uh, you could leave at any time. If there's ministry need, you could just go. Um, right now, brothers and sisters, if you're in uh, our college and career group, Christ our anchor, right now is the time to serve. You have undistraction, uh, no distractions in your service. You could go really hard for God. But he never wanted people to have a monastic experience. He didn't say, he didn't think that all people were going to be single and then stay single. He didn't expect those who were married to live as if they were single he says it like in seven, chapter 7, verse 32. Notice he says this. Chapter 7, verse 32. He's talking about an unmarried person. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. All he is saying is that you don't have as much freedom when you're married. And that's true. I've got a, I got a car and I have no cargo space in my car. I got to take a trip. So I got to make sure I have a, a rack on top for everyone's luggage. If it was just me and Chinette, we would fly there and fly back with one bag. But I got kids and they got stuff and they got schoolwork and they got, I got to take care of all of that. Right? But I gladly do it because I'm dad. And I'm a husband. And I gladly do it, Right? That's all Paul is saying. But he says, however, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. And he's talking about this gift of permanent celibacy. Notice he calls it a gift. This gift is that you are content, completely content with being single and you have no desire to be married. I've met some folks like that. Different churches, I've met some folks like that. Perhaps they've been widowed and they have no desire to remarry. And they're, now they're just in permanent celibacy. I know a, a guy who's a brilliant theological mind. He's just been celibate his whole life. Has no desire to be married and he's always traveling and preaching in different places. This is not... This is... I have to say this. As with any gift... There is frustration if you try to practice this and you don't have it, this permanent celibacy. All I have to say is, look at the Roman Catholic, uh, the, the long record of child abuse from all the priests who have who've been in there. Over and over and over, there's been sexual frustration from men who should have never been celibate. And we don't believe that to be enforceable at all. You need to be married, right? But what he's saying is, if you do have this gift, it can be a blessing. It could be a blessing to the church. 
It could be a blessing of Christ. And if this gift is given, you can be totally content and happy to be single. Singleness is not a second-class Christian, right? And we know many missionaries who lived a life of singleness and has been content. I just think of... Um, I just think of, uh, what's her name? Uh, Nate Saint's sister. What's her name? I forget her name. Ah, she's a saint. She, um, Nate Saint was killed in Ecuador, and his sister became a missionary to the same tribe that killed him and lived single all her life, served and, preached, uh, and um, shared Christ with them. All this to say, brothers and sisters, you have this as a single person, this vast opportunity to give glory to Christ. And you have this vast opportunity to shame the name of Christ with your sex life. Husbands and wives, you have this vast opportunity to glorify Christ. And you have this vast opportunity, opportunity to shame the name of Christ as well. Have you been bought with a price? I'm asking the church, have you? I can't hear you. Have you been bought with a price? Man, is that all you got? Have you been bought with a price? Amen. Let's live like it. Huh? Self-controlled by the power of Christ. Our sexuality not determined by this world, but by what Christ desires. Amen? Father, thank you so much for this. Thank you for the clarity you give in Scripture. God, I want to pray for our single people. Lord, help them. It's difficult. I think of our Marines. I just think about how over and over and over and all the jokes and the locker room jokes that they have to endure. God, I pray you would keep them pure. May they have a steady mind focused on you. May they start to memorize Scripture. David said, I've treasured your word in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Lord, it is possible in Christ. Lord, I pray for those married couples. Lord, maybe the fire has gone away. I pray, Lord, that they would see it as sin and that the husband would lead in romancing his wife again. Being interested in her again. Loving her again. It starts with a man as a leader. We pray, God, would you use us to glorify you uh, with our bodies as well as our minds and our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.